our God is greater and he is big enough for whatever it is that we need. Whatever you've walked in here with, whatever need, whatever hole in the soul, our God is big enough to fill it and be exactly that. Dear Jesus, we give back to you and we thank you for this opportunity. Amen.
That's powerful. Thank you. Wonderful worship. It's good to be with you this evening. Once you open your Bibles up to John chapter 6, really had a wonderful time sharing with you uh, what we've been uh, discovering in John chapters 5 and 6 this week and want to continue looking at uh, chapter 6 with you. Uh, I really hope that uh, you kind of you're coming to some conclusions, uh, to some conclusions in light of what we've been studying. I remember when, uh, again, see, I haven't, I haven't walked with the Lord as long as probably the vast majority of you. And uh, in many ways, this is still new to me. I have, a, I have an enormous weakness. Uh, I find myself at times blaming a lot of stuff on the enemy. When, to be quite honest with you, I'm probably my greatest enemy. I blame a lot of stuff on the enemy, but really, I'm under the impression that if I would just quit, if I would just drop dead, (laughs) if I would just give up, and stop trying to handle, stop trying to control, stop trying to produce, stop trying to rely on myself, um, I'm under the impression that God would just have His way and move in phenomenal and powerful and mighty ways. I believe that, which is so opposite than the world. See, I was a Marine, okay? may not look like it, but at one time, I was rather in shape and, well, I looked a lot like Scott at one time, is what I'm trying to tell you. And um, <laughs> there was a, when I was in the Marine Corps, I went in and I was, uh, of course, I was little at that time. I, I grew and grew and grew. I, didn't, I, was, I was actually little in high school. My growth spurt started around my junior year in high school, and I went all the way up until I was 21. And... Uh, one of the first days in boot camp, my, my drill instructor looked at me and he said, you're not going to make it. And I was an enormous, I'm an enormously stubborn person. And uh, I, I thought, I'll let him kill me before I give up. And uh, I was able to uh, buckle down and, and put my nose to it and just, I mean, really say, hey, get, get this done in my life. So when I became a Christian, my natural response was, hey, I can do this. <laughs> Which is so foolish. Because the message of the gospel is that we cannot do it. Okay? The message of the gospel, which is, was so ridiculous for me as a young Christian, was that God is calling me to live a lifestyle that I absolutely have no chance of living. Now, how ridiculous is that? that that's like my father saying, I want you to fly on top of the house. And it's never going to be done. And he can spank me for the rest of my life, and I'm never going to be able to fly on top of the house. Okay? He could tell me to run faster than you know, uh, some of the uh, athletics or athletes in the, you know, the professional sports, and just my body won't do that. Uh, I played basketball for the Marine Corps. There's just some things that my body was not going to do. I had limitations. I played to the, the limit of my body. And uh, to look at the Christian walk, the, the Christian lifestyle, and, and the message of the Old Covenant, really, I mean, you get this. Not, it's not just a new, new Testament deal. It's an Old Covenant deal as well. You look throughout the Old Covenant Scriptures, our Old Testament, and you find that this is, I mean, absolutely consistent with Old Testament, uh, with Old Testament thinking. Uh, God comes to the people, and it's this, it's this absolute, absolute statement. It's so clear. You are nothing like I am. He says, I am holy. You are unholy. I am this. You are that. There's, no, there's absolutely no similarity between us at all. And yet, on the same hand, he's looking at them, and he says, hey, be ye holy. And you're thinking, make up your mind, man. <laughs> How is this true? How is this possible? And it's because the concept in Christianity is that I am unable to live the lifestyle that I have been called to live 
But really, the deal is, is that Christianity is not based on my ability, based on my resource, based on my talent, based on what I can do. It's based on what he is going to do in and through my life. And if you have come to any conclusions this week whatsoever, uh, the conclusion you have to come to is you have to say, hey, Jesus, I am absolutely unable to live the lifestyle that you have called me to live. Now, there are several... We've been looking at this in John, but there's several passages that state this. One of my favorites is this one. Uh, Paul is pretty aggressive. I like the fella. And uh, he says things rather bluntly, which I think is helpful. And this is what he says, one of my favorite passages. Several places, but here is really neat. He's talking to the Corinthian church. And he says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. (laughs) That would make me chuckle, you know. Not a compliment. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Okay? Not many were influential, influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world. I'm in. To shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Now get this. Who has become for us wisdom? It's not that God gives us wisdom. God gives us Jesus and he is our wisdom. Yeah, that's exciting, isn't it? See, the idea is is that some people think, well, you become a Christian, you get smarter. No, you're just as dumb, but you have Jesus, and He's smart enough for both of us. That's the idea. He has become for us wisdom. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. See, He is our righteousness, and this is phenomenal. I'm coming to the conclusion that you get nothing outside of Christ. That you get Christ, and He's everything you need. That God doesn't give you anything apart from Himself. I am absolutely unable, and the only resource that I, that I need, the only resource that I have to uh, rely upon in order to live the life that he's called me to live is he himself, who has made himself absolutely available in my life. This is really difficult to try to get across. We try to do it every summer with interns, and we take three guys from colleges. Alan Bradley was, uh, is he in here? Good, I can rip on him. Oh, there you go. I'll still rip on him. And the idea is, is we have these interns that travel with us three every year. And uh, we get applications. And we, we read over them. We pray over them. And uh, it's really interesting. As you begin to hear, you ask questions, why do you want to travel? And you get some guys who say, oh, hey, I'm just what you need. I can sing. Um, I can preach. In fact, I'm the best in my class. And uh, it's probably the way that I stand. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm just really gifted. I can play the guitar. I can do this. I can do that. And they're just all about it. And you scratch your head and think, I don't know if they're what we're looking for. And then you meet others, like Alan, who qualified. They're just not too sharp. Uh, they're, they're, they're not too bright. Uh, you think, got, these guys don't have a, a, a chance of making it in the world. I mean, they're just almost losers, you know? And they fit in this group. Uh, This is a ridiculous type of talk, but the only chance you have of being a Christian is really admitting, hey, I'm unable. That I don't have what it takes. Uh, That there's nothing good in me at all. I'm the least of all God's people. Um, And in that you have hope. Because the greatest danger we have, I believe, is ourselves. 
if I would just give up and quit trying, um, if I would just stop, wouldn't, it, it, he would probably just take over and have his way in my life. Um, the cross, the end of myself. It's the idea of what we've been studying in our passage. And of course, uh, I want you to look again at uh, John chapter 6. And I want to focus with you on uh, verses 8 and 9 which is really an interesting section, and you're familiar with the passage. We've been looking at it this week. John chapter 6 is a, a very familiar story. It's in all four Gospels, which means it's significant. We've really given a lot of time and preparation to it and studying it and, and investigating it and having a great time with you looking at it this week. Um, the feeding of the 5,000 scene in John is a little bit different than it is in the other three Gospels. In fact, there's some uh, remarkably startling differences in John's account versus the other three Gospels. Some of them are noticeable in English translations. Others are not. Uh, a couple of the things that are noticeable, uh, you find down in verse, um, what would be uh, 5 down through verse 6, you have the testing of Philip. In John's account, Jesus is specifically targeting Philip. And he asked him, hey, where are we going to buy bread uh, for these people to eat? And you understand, you have to take that in the context of the passage. See, this is Philip's hometown. And I try to communicate this. See, one of the greatest uh, vulnerable times I find myself where I'm susceptible to falling flat on my, my face is not when I'm on the road. Really, not when I'm under great stress. It's when I think everything's going fine, I'm at home, I'm relaxing, I'm in familiar territory. You see, it's that, it's that time there when I, can le- I tend to lean on my own resource, my own understanding. I've done it a thousand times, and you almost think to yourself, I really don't need Jesus for this one. In fact, I've heard people in the church say, <laughs> this is actually a quote, I've heard people say, well, I do pray about things, but I, I don't want to bug him. So I only talk to him about the, you know, the stuff that I really need help on. <laughs> Little they knew they need help all over the place. You know? We need help in everything. So the times that I find myself most vulnerable are not in the stressed out times when I know I need him. That's, hey, that's, a, that's a given. The times when I, when I most foul up, when I'm at, at the greatest danger of, of falling into sin, is in the familiar times of my life. When I've been there before. This is Philip. He's from this town. He knows the economy. Jesus looks right to him. I mean, he's, he's at home. He probably, you know how it is when you go back to your hometown and you've been there. You know all the nice uh, stores and, and where to shop and where to eat, where not to eat, where to go to church, those kinds of things. Phil, this is his hometown. He knows the area. And Jesus looks at him and says, hey, where are we going to buy food for these people to eat? And, of course, Philip responds and says, not going to happen, Jesus. <laughs> I know the economy. Eight months' wages wouldn't hey, give enough uh, uh, food for each one to even have a bite. There's, it's not going to happen. It's not going to take place. This gospel, it's a focus and a, uh, it's an absolute directed testing toward Philip, which, again, is a little bit different from the other three gospels, but it's, a, it's back to the point of what John is trying to accomplish. And, again, probably should have stated this first, that the point of, of this of this account of the feeding of, five, of the 5,000 is that the absolute resource in our life is Christ Jesus himself. See, he is our only resource that we need. Philip is, is vulnerable of missing this. Now, another uh, detail that we, uh, uh, that we find different about this gospel or this uh, gospel account versus the others is the little boy that appears down in verse 8 by Andrew which is a part of our passage this evening. Uh, in the other Gospels, this little boy doesn't appear. I find it's interesting that it's, uh, it's another little uh, insert by John that Jesus takes the resource of a little boy's sack lunch 
and meets the need. And of course, the emphasis is not on the sack lunch. The emphasis is that, hey, Jesus is the one that meets the need, no matter what resource that we have. The other differences are, of course, in that this is a, uh, in the word given thanks, down in verse 11, which is the idea of the Eucharist. And uh, this is a celebration of the Lord's Supper, which again, hey, see the traditions of the church, and this is so easy to miss, uh, uh, from time to time we, we are probably all in danger of this. It's so easy to look at sometimes a Sunday as just another Sunday. When it's not, it's, it's an absolute focus on him and, 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 and he has ordained that hour and it's a specific time and he wants to move. It's an absolute focus on him. And, and what's going on in this passage is John has stripped the Last Supper scene of all the traditions, everything that would distract them from the concept of, hey, it's about him. It's about him and what he's doing. And the, and the Last Supper scene, the communion, when we're partaking of that, it is a celebration absolutely, solely, fundamentally of Jesus Christ and what he's doing in our life, which is phenomenal. Uh, so those are, those are some of the differences that we have in this gospel versus the other gospel. But one of the things that I find interesting about uh, the, in continuing in our study in chapter 6 is the setting. It's familiar to the disciples. In fact, uh, man, I really related to this because it's at this point in chapter 6 where the disciples, again, find themselves in a situation where it's absolutely evident that their resource is not going to cut it. Okay? Let me say that again. In this passage, in John chapter 6, it, they are put into a position. Uh, a position. And, and you understand this happens when they're out in the boat, the winds and the waves. Uh, this happens uh, the demon-possessed boy. Uh, of course, that's a Matthew, uh, a Matthew account. There are several accounts where the disciples find themselves in a position where, hey, they are in over their heads. <laughs> Do you ever feel like that? One of you? Liars. <laughs> okay. Uh, we find ourselves, like the disciples, in places and positions and in circumstances where, hey, what I have to offer is not going to cut it. That's what's going on in our passage. The disciples are brought right smack dab in the middle of this scene, and Jesus takes this insurmountable problem, and he dumps it right in their lap, and he says, hey, how are we going to fix this? And of course, they're flabbergasted saying, what in the world? There's no way we can fix this. But again... There's no way we can fix this. There's no way we can fix the problem. There's no way we can meet the need if you're coming back again to what you can produce in your resource and your ability and not back on his resource and what he can produce in his ability. Now, you need to understand, this is not the first time, uh, even in this gospel, that they've been up against this. I want to bring you back just a couple chapters where this is highlighted, extremely specific, uh, specifically in chapters 2 and 3. Okay. Chapter 2 and 3 is actually one continuous scene in John's account. Chapter 2, really beginning at verse 16, is the first temple visit, which in John's account is different. The cleansing of the temple is at the end of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, it's at the beginning in chapter 2. Verse 16 down through, or I'm sorry, verse 12 down through verse 16 are the events that took place in the temple. It tells you what Jesus did. He comes into the temple. He's flipping over tables. He's made this whip out of cords and he's cracking over there and he's slashing over there. And of course, he's tossing the, the coins and the money changers. He's gently ushering out the animals because he loves animals. But um, in verses 12 through 16, it tells exactly what Jesus did. From verse Verse 17, really significant, from verse 17 through the end of the chapter, there are three specific groups. You listening to me? There are three specific group, 
three specific groups. <laughs> Jeremiah, are you speaking correctly? There are three specific groups that respond to what Jesus has done. Okay? Jesus, 12 through 16, does what he does. 17 down through verse uh, 25 are three groups and how they responded to what Jesus does. Verse 17 is what group? The disciples. Verse 17 tells how the disciples respond to what Jesus does. We're going to look at that in a minute. Verses 18 down through verse 22 is, the, is another group. And what group is that? The Jewish leadership of Israel. Verses 23 through 25 is the group that we're calling those that believed in his name. Okay? It's a whole other group and how they responded to what Jesus has done. So that's what's taking place in the chapter. By the time you come to chapter 3, these events have taken place. It's sometime during that Passover week in an evening time. You have this guy by the name of Nicodemus who comes out to see Jesus and to talk with him. This is so significant. To talk with him about what, it, what was taking place in the temple that week. Okay? What actually was going on there? He didn't get it. He didn't understand it. Okay? Chapter 3, the first few verses verses is an introduction of who Nicodemus is. Now listen, oh, there is such a temptation. I don't know if you fall into this, but there's such a temptation to want to look at yourself more than you are in Christianity. And I am, I'm telling you, I don't, this is not just preacher stuff. I am absolutely convinced. I am absolutely convinced that it's not a focus uh, on the individual who's being used by God, but God himself. Now, we would obviously say yes. But at some point, is there any, any uh, emphasis that's to be placed on the person that's being used? I have teens that come up to be saying, man, you know, we wish that, you know, uh, if you would come to our church and preach all the time. Okay. We haven't heard that at your church, of course. But um, at, at churches, I hear that. Well, I, I, get, I really get down on that. Because, see, if you come to church seeking to hear Jesus, you're going to hear Jesus. <laughs> He's going to speak to you. And he can use me, and he can use, hey, Scott, and he can use Alan, and he can use, hey, it really doesn't matter. It, it's not the vessel that's important. I'm absolutely convinced of this. It's the person. And, the, and what I begin to find is the moment that I begin to put emphasis on, hey, you know, may, maybe I am pretty hot. <laughs> Trouble begins to arise out of the midst of that. You understand? I'm a loser. I can't forget that. So you need to help me remind me of that. Nicodemus is at greatest, as a greatest danger of, of not being in the kingdom. Now you understand, Nicodemus becomes, hear this, Nicodemus becomes a disciple at the end of this book. He's a good person. You find him continually sticking up for Jesus, all the time sticking up for Jesus. During the temple, he's the only one of the leadership of Israel who seeks Jesus out to say, listen, I really sense that there's something going on that's of God in you. Okay? I really sense something good's happening. I'm struggling with it. Help me out. This is Nicodemus. But Nicodemus is a good person. But he's in great danger. Why? Because he is a sharp cookie. He's a sharp cookie. In fact, what I'm finding is those of you who are really sharp and have what you might look at as gifts and abilities, you are the ones that are most danger, in danger of missing it. Because it's not about your abilities and your talents and your gifts that's getting you into heaven. You understand? It's all about him and what he's going to do in your life. Nicodemus comes into the scene. He begins to speak to Jesus. Now listen to how Nicodemus is introduced. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. 
Okay? He's not now, and, it's, and I need to make it a little bit more plain with the language. Uh, the Greek word there, of, it's a man of the Pharisees. Um, there's certain words uh, that add a little bit more color. And he could have used a normal word for of, but he uses the Greek word ek, which is a really neat word. Not only sounds cool, but uh, it gives content. It literally means out of or produced from is how that should be translated. In fact, when you read this statement, you can translate it like this. Now, there was a man produced from the Pharisees. And it's a statement that, hey, you want to know who Nicodemus is? He's not just a normal guy. He's the type of quality. He is the type of people that the Pharisees produce. They're scribes. Okay, they're, I mean, they're just phenomenally intelligent uh, individuals. That's who, this, that's who this, he's not just a normal guy. He's not just someone off the street. He is a man that has been produced by the Pharisees. And we know the kind of people that they put out, okay? The scribes, the elders, the teachers. But he's not just one of those guys. He's also a member of the Jewish ruling council. The Jewish ruling council, in other translations and in other parts of scripture, it's called the Sanhedrin. They are the teachers of the teachers, Okay? So you have this, this, this introduction of Nicodemus coming in. He's not just a teacher. Okay? He's not just produced from the Pharisee group, a teacher uh, that, uh, of high standing in his people. But he is a teacher of the teachers in his people. Okay? He is a member of the Jewish ruling council. You don't get any bigger than this guy. Okay? <laughs> Which is hysterical. Because listen to how Jesus talks to him. He comes in, verse 2, and he says to Jesus, Rabbi. Which is teacher. Showing him respect. Hey, Rabbi. Listen. It's evident. We know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one, hey, no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. He comes in, talks to Jesus, seeks him out that week in Jerusalem. He's probably in the upper room with he and his disciples celebrating the Passover. He comes up to Jesus and says, hey, listen, was down in the temple, saw the things that you were doing. It's absolutely evident that God is with you. Hey, I sense this. I see this in your life. It ends up leading him to be a disciple later. But at this point, he says, hey... We know that God is with you, for no one could do the things you're doing unless God was with you. It's this statement. But see, uh, there's some problems that Nicodemus has. He doesn't quite get it. And if I could stress this to, to you, the reason he doesn't get it is because he's seeing from the perspective of Nicodemus and not seeing from the perspective of. He's looking from the resource of Nicodemus, and he's a sharp guy. But he's not thinking and acting and living out of the resource of the Father. This becomes really plain in a second. But listen to what Jesus says to him. <laughs> I often found this comical. Jesus looks to him and so, looks at him and says, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God. You thought, you thought you saw some things. You came down, you said it's evident that God's with you. You knew something was going on. Listen, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Nicodemus, what you really need to do is just start completely over. <laughs> just be born absolutely all over again. Everything in you is worthless. It's not going to bring any light in your life. Hey, you just need to be absolutely born again. And of course, Nicodemus doesn't understand this. And so Jesus clarifies it in verse 5, 6, and 7, and 8. And he says, he starts talking about flesh, and I won't go through it, but let me explain it to you. He starts talking about flesh over against the spirit. And at, at one point in verse 8, he says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. What's been going on in the temple? Is it flesh or spirit? It's spirit. The, the, the product of Jesus' life is always the product of the spirit moving in his life. It's the, it's the product of the Father, which is spirit. Nicodemus is living out of the flesh. And Jesus says, you need to come over from the flesh side of life and move into the spirit-filled resource side of life. Again, Folks, I find this phenomenal. 
It's the same message all the way through the gospel. It's not about what you and you can provide. It's about what him and he can provide, man, which gives hope, you understand. How can, how would, how would, why would we despair? How could we, how could we despair if we are Christians and living in the resource of God? How could we fall apart? I can't would not be a part of our language. Not going to happen would not be a part of our language. Because there is nothing impossible for God himself. See, where failure comes is on the flesh side. And Jesus is calling Nicodemus, who is, his flesh looks really good, if you know what I'm saying. Okay. His flesh looks really good. It's, he's got a lot more flesh than most people have. But Jesus says, hey, you must be born again in the, in the birth that he's talking about. The Christian experience for Jesus is so radical that it's like you're brand new. You understand, uh, as a young Christian, I had a lot of uh, inquiries from past friends, uh, family, uh, we don't have Kroger's. We have Marsh supermarkets where I'm from. Probably don't know what Marsh is, but um, it had been several years since I'd been home. It was a miracle I graduated high school. I was voted most likely to die, <laughs> starve to death, something like that after high school. And uh, true story, I got out of the Marine Corps and God had gotten hold of my life. Went to Olivet Nazarene University, pursuing a call to ministry. I'm coming home visiting my mother and uh, I go to Marsh for her. Get some milk. And I'm walking, I'm walking into Marsh, and my uh, U.S. history teacher in high school was walking out. His name was Mr. Hoyt. He did not like me at all. Well, no one liked me, really. But the idea is, I mean, he really didn't like me. And he would always say stuff like, I'd come up and say, Mr. Hoyt, if I get an A on the next four assignments, an A on the test, will I pass? And he'd say, if ifs and nuts were fruits and butts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas, Bullock. <laughs> That's what he'd say. You have to figure that out on your own. But anyway, um, he's really aggressive towards me. And then we came in, and I saw him, and he saw me, and we probably would have avoided each other if we could have. But it was one of those awkward moments, and I said, hi, Mr. Hoyt. And he goes, Jeremiah. And I said, how you been? He says, good. I hear you uh, got your act together. <laughs> and I said, well, I wouldn't explain it like that. He says, well, I mean, uh, you shaped up. I said, well, no, that really isn't it either. I mean, you buckled down. I was like, well, no. <laughs> He's like, let me buy, Jeremiah. <laughs> you know? But the idea, see, the way he, and I don't know if he was a Christian, but the way that he talks about Christianity is that I improved. That's not it. That's not how we talk about Christianity. You don't get your act together. You don't buckle down. You don't improve. You don't shape up. It's an absolute radical transformation where you are different from the bottom of your feet to the top of your head. It's the same nose on the outside, but I am absolutely brand new. That man is so far gone the way that I used to think. He is dead, buried. He's almost the undead sometimes. But hey, that guy is out of my life and I'm brand new on the inside. This is the radical way that Jesus talks about salvation. If you call yourself a Christian, you literally are born all over again. Okay, You're a brand new person on the inside. Again, talking about the resource lifestyle. Not a flesh-lived lifestyle, but out of the spirit-lived lifestyle. Now, here's the point that I'm getting at. Nicodemus is really struggling with this. He's struggling, as some people are, with the idea that there's nothing good in him at all. That's really aggressive to look out at a group of people and say, you know, you are a bunch of losers. And have you go, oh, thank you. Wow. Boy, he's such a great evangelist. We want to have him back. You know, that's, that's a very aggressive point. To say that the only, re- the only way you can really be saved is to admit that you don't have a chance in the world of measuring up and being good enough to be a Christian. 
That's the message. And Nicodemus struggles with this. He's a leader of Israel. He's a great man. He's seeking after God. Okay? In fact, listen to how he responds in verse 9. He says, how can this be? How can, what in the world are you talking about? Here's what I want to tell you. The disciples, and, and, and Jesus makes this so clear to him. The disciples, like chapter 6, have been put in a position where it's absolutely impossible for them to succeed the way that Jesus wants them to succeed out of their own resource. Okay? And it's not that Jesus knows that the disciples are going to be in situations where they're going to need help. Jesus purposely, over and over, I believe not only the disciples, but for us, sticks us into circumstances where you have to rely on him. It's called faith. In fact, if you don't, man, destruction is going to... In fact, I believe, I'm absolutely just... I'm absolutely convinced that God purposely manipulates our lifestyle and puts us, puts us into positions where the only thing we can do is turn and go, Help! Because that's the Christian lifestyle of absolute dependency. Jesus is pointing this out to Nicodemus. Okay, The disciples are in. Nicodemus is out. And it has nothing to do, I hope you buy this, it has nothing to do with their own abilities. Because you would look at Nicodemus and say, he's bright. He's intelligent. You look at the disciples. Well, they're disciples. Look how they act. They're a lot like interns. My, my. I mean, you just, you look at him. You look at Nicodemus. He's a teacher of teachers. You look at the disciples. They're fighting. They're bickering. They're just, I mean, they're disciples. You know, I mean, look at them. In fact, in the book of Acts, they're described as ignorant fishermen. I mean, they're always, they're always out in left field. They're not doing anything right. Poor Peter. Good night. I mean, he lives with his foot in his mouth. And yet Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, listen, if you want to know the kind of lifestyle that I'm calling you to get into, he says, look right over there. And he points to the disciples. Listen to how he does this. Verse 10. Jesus says, you're Israel's teacher and you don't understand this. Listen to what he says. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know. And we testify to what we have seen. Who's the we there? You study this, you're going to find, especially in the context of John, he never talks about the Father as we. He talks about the Father and myself. Okay? There's no equality between Jesus and his Father in this book. He's a servant of the Father. So it's not we. The we in the passage, every scholar will tell you, especially in light of the context, is Jesus and the disciples. <laughs> Which is funny, because Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, listen, you're not in. You need to be born all over again. Everything about you is backwards. But let me show you the kind of people that I'm talking about. The kind of stuff that we're seeing. The kind of stuff that we're getting into. And he points over to the disciples. He says, we speak of what we know. This is so neat. Two Greek words for know. One Greek word is oida. One Greek word is gnosko. The word oida has to do with facts. Gnosko has to do with knowledge that is gained through personal experience. The word that Jesus uses here is not oida. He doesn't say, we speak of the facts that we know. In other words, the disciples can't write out a, a, a statement of faith. They can't give a dissertation on salvation. They can't really list out the details of what they're experiencing. The word he uses is gnosko. In other words, we speak of what we're experiencing personally in our lives. You go up and ask the disciples to write this down and explain it, they probably can't. But they can give you illustration over and over and over about, oh, I really can't explain it to you, but let me tell you about what God's doing in my life. The New Testament church called that testimonies. Called that testifying. 
The New Testament church, it was never based on an academic explanation of the gospel. It was always a group of people who stood up and said, oh, I experienced that. And let me tell you how that happened in my life. This is what he's saying. So you take that idea, okay? Jesus says, hey, the disciples are living out of this resource. They're constantly put in, grab a hold of this, they're constantly put in circumstances where they can't measure up. They're constantly put in circumstances that are, that are unfamiliar to them. There's no way they're going to live the way that Christ wants. I mean, it's, they're absolutely over their head, and yet they're succeeding. And their success is not based on their own abilities. Their success is based on him. Are you with me on this? I'm kind of dragging a lot, uh, through you a lot. But what he's saying, again, is that, hey, the disciples are succeeding. They're living the lifestyle I'm talking to you about. They're constantly put in situations where they can't measure up, where they're not going to be able to pull it off. They're in over their head, and yet they are living the way that they have been called to live, not because of who they are, but because of who he is. You go back into John chapter 2 really quickly. And in John chapter 2, Jesus does some things in the temple. And the, and the leadership of Israel, how they respond, which Nicodemus is part of that group, in verses 22 down through verse, uh, I'm sorry, verses 18 down through 22, the leadership of Israel have no idea what he's talking about. He, start talk, he starts talking about the temple, and they scratch their head and think he's talking about, of course, the building. Everything he says goes right over their head. They don't catch a thing. I found this really interesting. The disciples understand perfectly. Oh, this is great truth. Jesus comes into the temple, and you, there's no record in any gospel where Jesus says, Hey guys, pay attention, I'm getting ready to do something specific. And then he goes and does it. The idea is Jesus comes into the temple, and he's just, bam, taken away. As he runs across the temple, he flips over a table, he kicks a chair, he grabs these cords, he's cracking over here, he's slashing over here. It's absolute surprise, he didn't plan this, and it was spur of the moment for the disciples. But listen to how John records how the disciples respond. Verse 17. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Which is the only place in the entire New Testament that this verse is, is, is mentioned. And it's an obscure portion of a small psalm back in the Old Testament, which apparently is a prophecy about Jesus. Now, here's what John's trying to feed us. That Jesus... You know what preacher talk is? Where the preacher comes in. We don't lie. But the preacher comes in and says, I caught a fish this big. <laughs> you probably realize it's probably this big. Okay. It adds to the uh, drama. Okay, maybe I shouldn't talk about it this way. But from my perspective, I thought John was giving us preacher talk. That Jesus comes in, he does what he does in the temple, and what John tries to tell me is at the same time, all 12 disciples remembered this one verse. Come on. That immediately, immediately, in response to what Jesus does, uh, does in the temple, all the disciples go back into their, in their mind, in their, in, in, in their memory, and search for this one obscure psalm, and all at the same time, all 12 go, oh, zeal for your house will consume me. <laughs> It's not going to happen. Okay? I've had interns. That's not how it works. Okay? They're, they're not going to think like that. Okay? It's not going to take place like that. It's not going to happen like that. But the way that I was understanding remembering was not the way that he is talking about it. Remember here is not in the active voice, which means the disciples aren't responsible for remembering. It's in the passive voice, which means they're acted upon and caused to remember. Now, who do you think acts upon him and causes him to remember? 
And so the disciples are in a situation where Jesus acts and moves and God wants to, wants to show and demonstrate who Jesus is and, and the disciples are there and the disciples end up getting in on it. And we don't walk away from there going, man, those disciples, they are sharp. And we would go, no, God caused them to remember. Because they didn't have a chance of remembering outside of God making them remember. And it's interesting that all the scholars didn't catch it. Now this same word is used, it's used about ten times in the gospel, but it's used just a couple verses down, and in the NIV it's translated differently. In fact, when you go down to verse uh, 19 and 20, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews, of course, don't understand what he's talking about. Verse 21, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his, di- his disciples remembered. That's the exact same word in the original language. His disciples remembered what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures. And the reason they remembered is because of chapter 15 where Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will come and remind you of everything that I have said. So what you have, and this is so plain, what you have is over and over and over and over, you have these disciples that are placed in situations where it's absolutely impossible. There's no way they're going to perform well. There's no way. They've had no training. I I really found it interesting that I, I figured Jesus would give preaching classes, teaching classes. All the way through the Gospels, the disciples are constantly saying, teach us how to preach. And Jesus is like, don't sweat it. It'll be given to you when the time's ready. You know, don't worry about it. <laughs> it's not a big deal. There's no, there's no formal training whatsoever. And then you have Peter in the book of Acts stand up at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down on the guy and he preaches and 5,000 people are saved. And you say, he must have went to college during that 10 days. That's what happened. <laughs> no, it wasn't college, man. It was... And in fact, you go back, I challenge you to do this. We had John chapter 1, verses 40 and 42, we have a sermon called Loser Christianity. And it looks at Peter throughout the Gospels and how he's always, he's making these boasts. You know, I'll go to the cross with you and, and I'll never forsake you. He's, he's speaking on the Mount of Transfiguration and God has to tell him to be quiet and sit down. And I mean, he's just always, and there's an absolute difference between Peter in the Gospels and Peter in Acts. And the only difference has to do with him. That Peter came to a point where he was no longer in charge of himself, but God was in charge of him. John chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. What you have is a situation that Jesus looks to his disciples, specifically to Philip, and he says, it's testing time, Philip. Jesus is thinking this in the back of his mind. It's testing time, Philip. Are you going to get what I've been trying to teach you? Are you catching on to what I've been trying to get get across to you? Where are we going to find bread for these people? Hoping that Philip would say, "Ah, I don't know, Jesus, what are you going to do? But Philip flunks it. And the most least likely, everyone has a superhero. Uh, If you're into superheroes. If you had to pick a disciple, I probably would imagine, other than Judas, you would not really probably pick Andrew. In fact, you get the impression, the only reason Andrew's worth anything is because of his brother. In fact, every time Andrew's mentioned, they're like, it's Simon Peter's brother. I'm like, oh, yeah, that guy. <laughs> so he's kind of like a second-rate kind of guy. The only reason he's really mentioned is because of his brother type of thing. In verses 8 and 9, Andrew, again, Simon Peter's brother, steps up. And Jesus uses him as the model response of how you and I are to live when we're in circumstances that we can't handle that are over our head. Andrew comes up and he says, listen. This is ridiculous, Jesus. <laughs> I don't even know why I'm here. 
I stole this sack lunch from this poor kid. <laughs> it's just a couple sardines in there and some bread. It isn't much. It's not going to go far. But you have my resources, how inadequate they are. It doesn't meet the need. But hey, take what I have. And Jesus takes his resource and he uses it to meet the need of feeding 5,000 people. And you have the example. What you have in this passage as the answer is, is Jesus wants, I believe this, that Jesus does not need your talent. <laughs> Jesus does not need your ability. That Jesus does not need your smarts. That he doesn't sit back there and wait, man, like, you know, I just I can't wait till Jeremiah gets saved. The kingdom's going to fall apart if he doesn't hurry and get with it. We just really need him in youth camps. and <laughs> That's not it. That what Jesus wants is people who are absolutely, totally inadequate, who are going to admit their circumstances that I'm not able to stand in his midst and say, hey, I present you myself. And all my insecurities, and all my inadequacies, and all the areas of my life where I can't measure up, my pathetic, absolute, insignificant uh, gifts and abilities are at your disposal. And I present to you my sack lunch. (laughs) And he will take that and meet the need according to his plan. I wonder. I don't even have to work for illustrations on this one. I wonder where you're at in your life where you are absolutely in over your head. Really enjoyed being here with Scott and the family. And Scott's my age. Um, and I've found it interesting. You don't really find a guy Scott's age most of the time pastoring a church like this. They, you know, it's like the 40-year-olds. Somehow when you're 40, you all of a sudden get smarter or something. I don't know. And I'm, I'm 31. <laughs> Jesus, he isn't in here. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Um, I'm 31. And uh, I feel like I'm in over my head. I cannot tell you how intimidating it is to go to a camp meeting uh, where everyone... And their kids are older than you. <laughs> and you're preaching. Um, I can't tell you how intimidating that is. But I also cannot tell you how absolutely, extremely faithful he is. This is not a boast upon myself. This is a boast upon Jesus. I was um, doing a revival in Hernando, Church of the Nazarene in Florida. Which is a retirement community. We do revivals for retirement communities all the time. I found that strange. But they ran about 350. And um, I used to say, this is about six years ago, and I was young, obviously, then six years, 25 years old, and I used to always find myself saying from the pulpit, I know that I'm young, but I'm telling you the truth. It's what the Bible says. And I would always say that. After one of the services, a lady comes up to me and she says, when I came in this morning and I saw you sitting on the pulpit, she said, I was thinking to myself, who is that kid? And then she said, you stood up, opened your mouth, and the Holy Spirit came out. And she goes, God checked me. And she looked at me and she goes, you are to never make excuse for your age again. And then she goes, you understand me? I said, yes, ma'am. I said, yes, ma'am. And God has continually confirmed over and over and over that who he calls, and I wouldn't want to talk about it in terms of who he calls because that puts emphasis on the person. It's the place that you find yourself in is not a surprise to him. You may have created it. Okay? Don't blame him. Don't blame the situation on him. Okay? Most of the time, the situations we're in are a product of us and our bonehead decisions. Okay? But it has not escaped him. It is not over his head. 
And when it really comes down to it, it's not in terms of how you are going to get out of it. It's you submitting to him and his leadership and his goal and his resource and saying, hey, I give you myself how inadequate it is. Meet the need in this situation. Be encouraged. Father, we love you this evening. I stand in the midst of a time in my life where I feel so inadequate being a father.